0: I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11. I've just had one of the most satisfying weeks of my life this past week, traveling around with Dr. Howard Hendricks, uh, ministering to uh, pastors here in the state of Idaho. Uh, One of the best-kept secrets, I think, in our body is a little ministry we call Idaho Mountain Ministries, which is an attempt to try to help rural and backcountry pastors in the job that uh, God has given them to do. These uh, men and their wives are some of the most underappreciated, underpaid, overworked, overcriticized people in the world, and uh, our hearts really go out to them. One of the ways we feel we can help them is to uh, feed them spiritually, and for that reason we have set up this uh, ministry. Twice a year we bring someone out. Uh, to uh, teach them most of these men and women can't go over to Portland or Seattle to a pastor's conference but uh, what we can do is bring a pastor's conference to them and uh, we just uh, we just had the time of our lives I didn't do anything but sit and watch but it was uh, exciting to see God work we had about 170 pastors and their wives and Christian leaders here about 120. In Pocatello, about 100 in Lewiston, 400 total people that ordinarily would not have a chance to be helped in this uh, in this way. And I just want to say to all of you a word of thanks and appreciation for your support, your prayer, and your financial support of uh, this ministry. This is your way of, of reaching people that uh, you might not have any personal contact with, but God is using you to... Uh, Help these men and women do the ministries that God has called them to. Now, I'd like to read for you this uh, section of Luke's Gospel, beginning with verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been dumb spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe, but When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it founds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than at the first. Now here's another example of uh, of God wasting his time on some uh, unknown, some Nobody. His name is not uh, given to us. Luke tells us that the man was mute. Matthew uh, adds the further information that the man was blind. Jesus diagnosed his, uh, his symptoms as those of, of demon possession. This man was demonized. Of course, not all uh, speech impediments and not all blindness are caused by Satan, but in this case, Satan had tyrannized this man. It gives us some idea of Satan's intentions for us. He is not the friend of the human race. He hates us. He would like to take away from us everything that makes life uh, worthwhile, if that's possible. This man uh, was feeling the full effects of uh, demon possession. Jesus picked him out of the crowd, and uh, he cast out the demon. The verb tense that, that Luke uses suggests that this was quite a tussle. The demon resisted him. Our Lord was locked in time in hand-to-hand combat with this uh, demon, but after a bit, he exorcised him, cast him out, and the, man, and, and the man began to speak immediately. The crowd was uh, was electrified. This was a clear demonstration of Jesus' power. There was there was no denying it. But uh, the reaction was not one of belief. They began to test him. One group, as Luke tells us, asked for another sign. Big deal, they said, so you cast out a demon. Let's, uh, let's, see, let's see you do something else. Let's see you demonstrate your power in some other way. Uh, Jesus answers that particular group a bit further in the chapter. Luke tells us that uh, Jesus said, verse 29, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a, for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, a lot of people disagree with me, but I think Jonah died in the belly of the whale. People uh, raise the question, how in the world can a man live for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? My answer is, he can't. Uh, if you read the poem in the book of Jonah carefully, you'll... Jonah refers to the fact that the bands of death encircled me. He went down into shields. he puts it. He, the man died, and then he was raised from the dead. And that's why he had such an impact on the city of Nineveh. The word got out. This man had died and was raised from the dead. And that's why they repented from the top down, from the king to the court to the commoners. They all repented. They all put on sackcloth and ashes. They even put sackcloth and ashes on the animals the whole city repented because of the impact of the sign of of Jonah. And Jesus says a bit later in this uh, this conversation with these doubters, the people of Nineveh will sit in judgment on this generation because they saw a man rise from the dead, and you will see someone rise from the dead and you won't believe it. Jesus' point is that uh, no amount of evidence will convince us if, uh, if we don't want to be convinced. I am... I'm certain that, that hardly anyone ever rejects the gospel for intellectual reasons. They do so for moral reasons. Jesus said uh, we reject the truth, we reject the light because we, we like darkness. We love darkness better than, than the light. We don't want our deeds to be exposed. We don't want our sin to be shown. We, want, we don't want to be revealed for what we are, and so we hide from the darkness from the light that enlightens every man, as as John puts it. I think when you hear the gospel, you know that Jesus is the truth. We reject him not for intellectual reasons. We reject him for moral reasons. And no amount of evidence will convince us if, if we don't want to be convinced. We're like the man that went in to see his psychiatrist and he said, My problem is I'm dead. And the psychiatrist said, you're not dead, you're breathing, you're standing upright, your heart is beating, you're alive. No, I'm dead, I've been dead for years. So the psychiatrist decided that he'd convince him that dead men don't bleed. And he talked to him for a while, and finally the man was assured that dead men do not bleed. And so then he took a letter opener out of, out of his desk, and he stabbed the man in the finger, and he started to bleed. And the man looked at it and said, hmm, dead men do bleed after all. See, that's our problem. We will not be convinced if we don't want to be convinced. No amount of evidence will will convince us. I have often talked to men and women who tell me they have a lot of problems with Christian faith. They don't understand the uh, the Crusades, the pogroms against the Jews, the Salem witch trials, those sorts of things. And uh, and I listen to them, and after a while, I say, you know, I I understand. You know, I can't justify everything that Christians have done from the very. But tell me, is that really your problem? What what's really bugging you? And usually it's something quite different from the intellectual problem that they, that they pose. Now, uh, Jesus uh, turns from this group, those that want another sign, to the other group, who, who recognized that what Jesus had done denoted power. There was no denying his authority. There was no question that this man was, uh, was cleansed that the demon was cast out because he immediately began to speak, someone who perhaps hadn't spoken for years. So they knew that they could not explain this solely in terms of human power. They couldn't explain this deliverance in terms of, of any education Jesus had received or the power of his personality or his physical appearance or, or any of these human reasons. There had to be some supernatural basis for this, uh, for this action, and since there are only two powers in the world, God and Satan, they attributed his his exorcism to Satan. They said, you do these things by the power of Beelzebub, or Beelzebub, as some of the translations uh, put it. People were always making up dirty names for Jesus, and this was one of them. If you go back to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew says uh, to his disciples, they have called the... Lord of the house, the Lord of flies, Beelzebul, Beelzebub. If they've called the Lord of the house a nasty name, just think of what they're going to call those who live within the house. He was preparing them for, th- for this sort of rejection by, by those that uh, wouldn't believe their message. So apparently they were calling Jesus Beelzebub. Uh, uh, as far as we can tell, that was the name of an ancient Phoenician deity, and the name had been corrupted somewhat by the Jews. The word Beelzebub or Beelzebub is an Aramaic term. We don't know exactly what it means. But they had taken that name of, a, of this deity and they had, they, had, they had corrupted it slightly to make it mean the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Garbage Dump or something like that. And that was the name that they gave to Satan. And that was the name that they were giving to Jesus. And they were saying, you're doing your, uh, your works under his, under his authority. It strikes me as an interesting name for Satan, the Lord of the Flies, because he is the uh, prince of the of the garbage heap. Jesus picks up on that metaphor when he describes hell as a garbage dump. He, his name for hell was Gehenna, Gehenna. It's Aramaic uh, name Geh Valley Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a It was a geographical place name. It referred to a location just to the southwest of Jerusalem. If you visit Jerusalem today and you look off to the south, there's a valley that cuts across uh, from the west. It's called the Valley of Hinnom, a family by the name of Hinnom originally lived there, and the valley was named for them. And that was the place where Ahaz and Manasseh had sacrificed their children to Moloch, and that was the place that Josiah cleansed and turned into a garbage heap. And at some time in history, the thing caught on fire, and it smoldered and burned, and, in Jesus' day, it was a metaphor for hell, a place of wasted lives, trashed lives, which is what Satan wants to do. God wants to glorify us; He wants to make something out of us, something enduring, something beautiful, something lasting. And Satan wants to trash us, and that's why Jesus referred to uh, that place as the as the garbage dump, and uh, the Lord of the Flies is a is an apt name for Satan himself but the problem was they were saying Jesus did what he did under the authority of, of the Lord of, of the flies. His argument's very good this takes a moment to understand what he's saying very trenchant what what he says to the, well actually he says two things. the first is Satan is not so naive as to destroy his own kingdom. Now these men that fly a force then at uh, mountain home you know, they don't train them and then send them out to come back and destroy their bases. Satan wouldn't do that. He's not that foolish. Secondly, uh, he points out that the Jews themselves had exorcists. Some of the rabbis cast out demons, and they did so by the authority of God. And uh, if you're saying that I cast demons out by demons, we could just as well say that, that your people do. And you don't want to say that, he's saying. And what he's really doing is driving them to the conclusion, the only conclusion they could possibly come to, that what he was doing, he was doing by the authority of God. And if that's true, then the kingdom of God has come. That's the bottom line. He uses an expression, the finger of God, which would remind them of the story of the Exodus. That, that phrase occurs in the book of, of Exodus. Uh, the pharaoh's magicians were able to counterfeit certain of the plagues until finally they came to a point that they could no longer counterfeit the plagues. And they could no longer undo the plagues that Moses uh, placed on uh, on uh, Egypt. And they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. No other explanation for it. It's not Moses. It's not Moses' staff. It's not demons. It's the of, finger of God. And Jesus says, if, if this is the finger of God, if the only conclusion we can come to is that I do what I do by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, uh, people have a lot of different uh, understandings of the kingdom, and I, I don't want to really debate that issue right now. I'm fairly agnostic about what form the kingdom will eventually uh, will eventually have. I'm going to leave that whole issue up to God. Uh, when it happens, it will happen, and I'll say, yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> But I know this on the basis of Jesus' words and on the basis of the words of of the apostles. The kingdom is here in some form today, in spiritual form, because Jesus said so. If this is the finger of God, then the king has come. That's the inescapable conclusion to which they they were being drawn. You see, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that there are really only two eras in history. There's the world that now is, which is under the control of the evil one. Satan has this world in his pocket. This is what they described as the present evil age. And there's the coming age when the king will come and set things right. And you see what Jesus is saying? If I do these works by God, then the kingdom has come. The king is here. There's no other conclusion to which they could, uh, they could come. And he hammers the point home with a picture. It's a sort of classic melodrama. The villain, the victim, and the hero. You know the story. Uh, the, the, the wicked villain, you know, who curls his mustache, who skulks around and, and uh, kidnaps uh, Penelope. Penelope. Sweet Penelope and ties her to the railroad track, and the train is coming. It's just a matter of moments before she's going to be uh, going to be killed, and the hero shows up in the nick of time, and he scuffles with the uh, with the villain, and they duke it out, and finally, you know, it looks like he's going to lose. The villain has him down on the train track, and he's choking him, and the train is coming, and everybody's getting tense, and then finally, the the hero throws him off, and he throws his best punch, and the villain goes down, and. And he snatches pretty Penelope off of the the railroad track and the train rushes by and everybody heaves a sigh of of relief. That's what uh, Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. That is uh, a situation in which everything seems to be going irrevocably wrong and in in the last minute good is snatched out of evil. And that's the little story that Jesus tells, a wonderful little story. He says there's a strong man and there's a stronger man and the strong man comes and he takes away the, the the stronger man comes and takes away the strong man's possessions now by uh, the strong man Jesus is thinking of the uh, of Satan the evil one the elzebel the lord of the dung heap and he's fully armed he says for human beings to go up against him is like like uh, me going up against mike tyson Start writing my epitaph the minute I step into the room. Uh, some of you know my oldest son, Randy. He's a cop. He's about this big. He weighs about 240. He bench presses about 375. And he comes into our uh, house, you know, with this nine millimeter strapped on one hip and this club on the other. And, and uh, he says to me, hey, Dad, let's go. I say, yes, sir. He's fully armed. And so is the evil one. Jesus said his possessions are in peace, that is, they're secure. They, They can't be taken away from him. Now, that's his description of the world. That's the fate of the world. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, as John puts it. We are in the kingdom of darkness. We belong to him. We're, we're his possessions. You know, my favorite verse, the one I quote over and over again, is Second 2 Timothy 2.24. The servant of God must not strive, but be gentle with all men, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If peradventure God, per God will grant deliverance to those that have been captured by Satan to do his will. You see, that's the problem. We've been victimized. The enemy is not the person who doesn't believe. They're the victims of the enemy. The real enemy is the evil one. And uh, he has them under his control. They belong to him. They're safe and secure. They might as well be shut up in Fort Knox. And that's that tells us what's wrong with uh, with our world. That's why there's so much marital strife and chemical abuse and emotional disorder. It's why reform is so difficult. That's why urban renewal and. And slum clearance and educational reform doesn't do any good. That's why people are enslaved to drugs and sex and power and ambition and alcohol and pornography. It's because they are victimized by the the evil one. That's what Paul describes as the mystery of lawlessness. That's why people are lawless. I don't think our lawmakers understand that. Some of them do. Some of them don't. The... uh, the apostles and Jesus used that word mystery as a borrowed term. They, they took the word from the mystery religions of that, of that day. The mystery religions were like secret orders and secret handshakes and secret signs and secret passwords. And the only people that knew the secret word were those that were on the inside. They knew the mysteries. And uh, both Jesus and Paul and other of the apostles used that term. For those of us that know the secrets, we're on the inside. We have God's Word. We see behind the scenes. We don't just judge on the basis of what's seen. We know what's going on behind the scenes. In the unseen world of spiritual realities, what Paul tells us is that there's a mystery to lawlessness. And the mystery, the secret that God reveals is that behind the scenes is this terrible tyrant that uh, holds people under his control. That's why life is so difficult. But uh, the good news is that there's a stronger man. And when he assaults the strong man, the strong man has no uh, defense. He divides up the spoils. That is, he liberates his possessions. As Paul puts it in Galatians 1, He gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Remember the passage that I read to you uh, earlier when Jesus began his public ministry after the temptation? He went to Nazareth. He opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read the following. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. That's what the king came to do to set us free from the kingdom of darkness and transplant us into the the kingdom of of light. That was his mission. I uh, know a mother whose son was a drug abuser, had been a substance abuser for years. She uh, saw to it that he went through a number of uh, programs Nothing seemed to work. He kept falling back into his habit. He struggled and struggled and eventually uh, left home. This uh, mother found uh, a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 24, and 25. Let me read it to you. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? This is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will do battle with those who do battle with you, and I'll save your children. Now, you know, we shouldn't just proof text, just find a verse and claim it. It doesn't really work that way, but God really spoke to this woman through that passage, and she believed that God was going to set her son free, and she began to pray that he would be set free from the plunder. And about two weeks later, he called and said, I want to come back home. I want to get my life back together. And he came back, and he began to associate with Christians again. He began to get the kind of help that he needed. And he was able to to walk away from from the habit, at, at least for this time he is. In, and what, what had been promised here happened. He was set free from the plunderer. Now, I can't guarantee that that's always going to happen. I talked to a young man after the morning service, who has struggled and struggled and struggled with a habit that he still is not able, he he doesn't sense any deliverance yet. But he will someday, and that's what I could tell him. One of these days we're going to stand in our Lord's presence and we'll be just like him. And we'll be set free from every obsession, every habituation, everything that that oppresses us and tyrannizes us now. And, And that process will be working as we move toward that time. Because that's what he came to do. He came to set us free. Now, uh, what our Lord is saying is that there are only two men in the universe. There's the strong man and the stronger man. Furthermore, there are only two classes within humanity. There are those that align themselves with the strong man, and there are those that align themselves with the stronger man. That's what he means in verse uh, 23 when he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. No other option. As C.S. Lewis put it, there is no neutrality in the universe. Every inch of the universe is either claimed by God or counterclaimed by Satan. Now, we don't believe that. Well, there are these people over here that follow Jesus. And there are these people over here who are really hardcore Satanists. They're into demon worship. And then there's the rest of us who are just kind of here in the middle. We haven't decided yet. But Jesus says, it can't be. It can't be. If you're not for Jesus, if you're not in this camp, then you're against him. And if you're not gathering people to Jesus and you're scattering them, I don't care how much good you think you're doing, you're, you're, you're causing disintegration. Your effect is centrifugal. Uh, I love that picture of gathering to Jesus. It struck me as I was studying this passage this week. It's a great picture of what the ministry is. You know, we, we see ourselves like a bunch of sheepdogs that are just kind of, you know, herding the sheep on, back to the shepherd. That's our job is to gather people to Jesus. On the other hand, there are those that just bark at the sheep and scatter them. But there's no middle ground. Do you understand that? There's no neutrality. Either we're for Jesus or we're against him. Either we're gathering people to Jesus or we're scattering them. I don't care how humane our efforts may be, how human we may be, how intent we may be upon doing good to others. If we are not gathering people to Jesus, we are scattering Those are hard words, but those are those are Jesus words. Now, I, I think verse twenty four is addressed to the uh, to the man from whom the demon was exercised. I think Jesus was talking to the crowd, and he points out to them that there are only two men in the world, and there are only two classes of people in the world. And then he turns from the crowd of unbelief, and he, and he where there's unbelief, and he turns to the man. And he says to him, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Pardon me. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than, than the first. Another little picture. He says that it's like a man's house. And uh, you know, he says your, your, your life is like, like, like your house. And you had a demon in there, and he's trashed the place. You know, a dirty words scrawled on the wall, and he kicked in the plaster, and the carpet is frayed and ruined, and and uh, you know, the place looks—it's a dump. The place looks terrible. So the demon gets thrown out. He he, you know, he gets tossed out into the street, and uh, you say, "Well, we got to fix this house up." So you go out and get an interior decorator, and you put in new carpets, and you paint the walls, and you put in new chandeliers, and you move new furniture, and you refurbish the place. And you think, my, this is really nice. The demon comes back and he says, you're right, this is nice. And he goes out and gets seven of his friends and brings them back. And they all move in and hang a sign, home sweet home, on the wall. And your latter state is worse than your first. Jesus said, and what does he mean? He's talking to the man from whom the demon was exercised. And he said, it isn't enough to get the demon out. God has to come in. Because nature abhors a vacuum. Your soul abhors a vacuum. We were made... For the spiritual world, there's eternity in our hearts. We can't do without spiritual entities. We think we can live without them. We think that a man's life consists of an abundance of things, but it doesn't. That's why the more things we acquire, the emptier we become. And if we don't fill our life with God, what we'll do is fill our life with an infinite number of lesser deities that will never satisfy us. Our hearts, as Augustine put it, are restless until we find find rest in God. So uh, his appeal to the man is to choose God as a resident. Part of the work is done. The demon has been possessed. But a worse thing can happen if he doesn't fill his life with God. He would say the same to us. Now, Matthew does an odd thing at this point. He introduces an idea that, that, uh, for whatever reason, Luke omits, and it's this notion of an unforgivable sin. I want you to turn back to Matthew 12 and look at that parallel because I think it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about. (coughs) Verse 30. (coughs) Pardon me, Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now remember, they've been making up dirty names about Jesus, and Jesus says, that's all right. That won't condemn you. But if you blaspheme against the Spirit then you committed the unpardonable sin. And the question is, what is the unpardonable sin? If there is some sin from which we can ne- for which we can never be forgiven, then we better avoid it at all costs. What is it? You know, is it adultery? Is it uh, is it suicide? Is it murder? Is it homosexuality? Is it greed? Is it pride? Is it ambition? Is it materialism? Uh, is it making up swear words with the Holy Spirit's name in it? I mean what is it? What's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you what it is. It is a refusal to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit when he tells us that Jesus is the way. That's what they were doing. The Holy Spirit was speaking to their hearts. He was telling them that Jesus did his works by the finger of God. and they weren't listening. They had rejected the witness of the Spirit to the truth about Jesus. That's the only sin that Jesus cannot pardon. Because if we reject the salvation that our Lord sent us and his Son, then there's no other way. Uh, Jesus said in another place that when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and, uh, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe on me. That is the unpardonable sin, unbelief in Jesus. That's the only sin which condemns us. God is not primarily concerned about the fact that we lie and cheat and steal and fornicate and do all those things. You know, he is. But that's not what separates us from God. What separates us from God is our unwillingness to believe the message that Jesus is the Son of God and has come to save us. And if we don't believe that message... There's no other salvation. No other way. None other name. Uh, As the little poem puts it, none other lamb, none other name, none none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. So the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and convinces us of sin, the sin of unbelief we have to decide we're either for him or against him there's no neutrality I'd like to read one other passage to you and then we're done would you turn to Hebrews 10 Hebrews is a little a little further along in the New Testament Hebrews 10:26. I have to give you a little background of the book so you understand this uh, paragraph The book of Hebrews was written to to Jewish Christians, many of whom were nominally Christian. That is, they'd made some kind of confession to Christ, but uh, it wasn't a deep and profound commitment. uh, Some of them were like the people that Jesus described in his parable of the sower and the seeds. Their commitment was real shallow. There was no root to the the seed. Uh, They had made at least a, a nominal commitment, but... In reality, there was no real submission to our Lord's uh, authority. So they were just sort of on the fringe. And the problem was because they had identified themselves with Christians, their Jewish brothers were beginning to harass them and hound them, and they were were being persecuted, and uh, they were tempted to go back into Judaism. So whoever wrote this book wrote it to these Jewish Christians in order to encourage them to keep on to continue to believe, to understand that, that, that Jesus is the end of the law, and that going back to the law would be to undo everything that God had done in their lives up to that, to that point. And so he says in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, now he's not talking about sins per se, he's talking about the sin of unbelief. If we sin in turning our back upon Jesus... If we keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Why? Because there isn't any other sacrifice. What are you going to do? Try a little more spit and polish? You're going to gussy up your life a little bit? You're going to try to do a little better? Is that going to atone for your sin? Absolutely not. There is only one sacrifice that will take away sin, and that's the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. So when you reject that one... There's nothing God can do for you. Now it doesn't mean that we're that we're locked in to that decision. One of the uh, there's a Christian rock groups that, a group that has a, I can't think of the name right now, but there's a line in one of their songs. You may walk a thousand steps away from Jesus, but it only takes one step to come back. At least that's the idea. And uh, at any time we can come back, but as long as we reject the sacrifice of the Son, there remains no sacrifice for sin. There's nothing nothing else that God can do. Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin, rejecting the witness of the Spirit to the truth of Jesus. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so we have to choose. We have to choose. There's no neutrality. If you haven't yet decided for Jesus, then you've decided. You've decided against him. We cannot keep on drifting. We have to make up our minds. We have to choose. Let's pray. I'd like to ask you this morning to choose. This may be the first time you ever realized that simply to ignore the message of Christ or to defer judgment is to have already made a decision. And you never thought about the fact that you were enslaved and tyrannized and serving the strong man, this may be maybe the first time you heard that there's a stronger man, someone who came to set you free. So often the Christian life is posed as uh, just a number of restrictions that further cramp our style, but, but what this passage tells us is that what our Lord came to do is to, is to set us free, to make us more alive than we've ever been in our life. He said, this is eternal life. That they they may know me. If you've never made that choice, this would be the time to do it. Don't put it off any longer. Just make that decision. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for providing the sacrifice that's necessary to bring me home to God. And just thank him. Make that decision. Don't put it off. Do it now. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for coming. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing that uh, about us that necessarily would draw out your love. You, you did it even while we were sinners. You did it because you love us even while we are sinners. And we thank you for coming. And we very much like to have that life that you've offered to us. We thank you for bringing it to us, making it available to us. We want to give up our lives to you in every way. Those of us that have known you, we want to reaffirm the fact that uh, just the joy in knowing that, that we're, we're in your kingdom and delivered from the past, the habits, the guilt, the moods, the, the things that have tyrannized our life, the shame of the past. Thank you for translating us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We want to thank you again for this reminder of your goodness. We thank you in Jesus' name.